This episode contains dramatizations of suicidal ideation, animal cruelty, and some outdated attitudes toward mental health. Please exercise caution for listeners under 13. The following is a passage from The Captain of the Pole Star by Arthur Conan Doyle. It was nothing very alarming, a mere sound and that was all. I cannot expect that anyone reading this, if anyone ever should read it, will sympathize with my feelings or realize the effect which it produced upon me at the time. It is only here, in these arctic seas, that stark, unfathomable stillness obtrudes itself upon you in all its gruesome reality. You find your tympanum straining to catch some little murmur and dwelling eagerly upon every accidental sound within the vessel. In this state, I was leaning against the bulwarks when there arose from the ice almost directly underneath me a cry, sharp and shrill, upon the silent air of the night, beginning, as it seemed to me, at a note such as a prima donna never reached, and mounting from that ever higher and higher until it culminated in a long wail of agony, which might have been the last cry of a lost soul. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden. Welcome to Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Each week, we reimagine chilling paranormal tales from history's most sinister storytellers, told like you've never heard them before. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're concluding Arthur Conan Doyle's maritime mystery from 1883, The Captain of the Pole Star. Last week, we began reading the journal of John McAllister Ray, a medical student and ship's doctor aboard the Pole Star, a whaling ship trapped in the ice fields of the Arctic. At first, he wrote this journal merely as a way of keeping himself occupied, but was soon drawn into the enigma of the ship's captain Nicholas Craigie. The captain is an odd man. Some unknown trauma from his past has made him temperamental and prone to melancholy. The crew thinks he longs for death, while the doctor fears he is losing his grip on reality. The captain, however, insists he has seen a mysterious figure upon the ice. And he isn't the only one. Members of the crew have spoken of strange noises echoing around the ship at night. The doctor was skeptical of these claims until the night of September 17th. That night, he heard an unholy shriek upon the wind, a sound that shook him to his very core and shattered every assumption he held about the superstitions of sailors. Unable to deny what he had witnessed, the young doctor is forced to consider that maybe, just maybe, the pole star is haunted after all. Coming up, the ghost of the pole star draws ever closer. Hear that? 
It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. September 17th continued. I confess myself quite unnerved by what I have just heard upon the deck. I keep saying to myself that it was some quirk of the Arctic wind in the hopes that it will dull the dread building in the back of my mind. The ghastly scream is still ringing in my ears. Grief, unutterable grief, seemed to be expressed in it. After several minutes of interminable silence, I fled the deck with such haste that I dropped both my pipe and tobacco. As I came down, I met Mr. Milne coming up to relieve the watch. The first mate clearly noticed my distressed expression, for there was a knowing glint in his eye when he spoke. Well, doctor, never heard an old wife's tale skirling like that, have ye? In the midst of my fear, I felt guilty for not having taken the man at his word. I gathered my composure as best I could and apologized, saying I was as puzzled by the sound as he was. We went our separate ways, him to the lonely dark above, I to my cabin, where I poured myself a brandy and waited for my nerves to calm. At time of writing, they have yet to do so. Perhaps tomorrow things may look different. At present, I dare hardly write all that I think. September 18th. Passed a sleepless night, still haunted by that strange sound. Captain Craigie looks weary as well, his face haggard and eyes bloodshot. I have not told him of my adventure last night, nor shall I. The captain's restlessness, which I have written of earlier, has returned in full force, and I do not wish to agitate him any more with fanciful stories. Even now, he's pacing with such passion on the deck that I can hear his steps in my cabin. I have heard rumors from the officers that the captain's peculiar mood stemmed from a guilty conscience of some variety, but I'm afraid I cannot credit this. He has not the air of a guilty man, but one who has seen terrible misfortune. I'm more inclined to regard him as a martyr than a criminal. However, after last night's unsettling occurrence, my efforts to understand our mysterious captain have been thoroughly derailed. The details which I have previously logged, his strange outburst at the sight of my fiancée Flora's image, or the striking portrait of a young lady over his bed, all seemed secondary to that dreadful sound I heard. Or was what I heard somehow connected to what the captain saw upon the ice? This would be a curious development, as the captain's reactions to these visions are entirely different than those of his crew. While they quail in fear, he cries out with expressions of longing, arms held wide. Who or what calls to him from the wailing cold? But, for the good news, the ice has begun to recede, as I had hoped, creating a fine lead to the southwest. We promptly cast off our anchor and sailed ahead. Seasickness be damned, it's good to feel the pole star move again. But alas, after twelve miles, 
we were stopped by yet another ice field even more immense than the one we left behind. It bars our progress completely, so we can do nothing but anchor again and wait until it breaks up. I cannot understate the effect the ship's movement has had on my mood. It was as if the fatalism I had cultivated among that awful ice took root there and was left behind in the ship's wake. Our new barrier is not quite so devoid of life as the last. Since we've arrived, the crew has caught sight of several bladder-nosed seals. I have never seen such powerful creatures. The largest must have been 11 feet long. The sailors say they can be as fierce as bears, if not more so. But at present, we're safe aboard our ship. One of these magnificent animals mounted the ice beside our ship and seemed for all the world like it was looking directly at me. Once again, I found myself cursing the fact that I am no skilled artist, for I would have loved to reproduce its image in the pages of my journal. But I was startled from my reverie by the crackle of rifle fire at my side. The creature's head jerked backwards, and then the whole blubbery body slumped onto the ice. I looked to my left to see James Allen, the ship's chief engineer, holding a smoking rifle in his hands. A cheer erupted from the deck. I suppose this crew of whalers were so starved for action that even such a brief hunt caused their passions to flare. Now, I've been in the operating room as much as the next medical student. I'm hardly intimidated by gore. But something about this scene has stayed with me. Perhaps it's how pristine the tundra looked before this sudden act of violence. You've never truly seen the color red until you've beheld blood upon the ice. Though the men seem certain we will reach the open sea, the captain is doubtful. I suppose you think it's all right now, doctor, Captain Craigie said as we sat together after dinner that your beloved Flora won't be missing you for much longer. I hope so, I answered. He nodded, smiling almost pityingly. Perhaps we'll all be in the arms of our own true loves before long, lad, won't we? But we mustn't be too sure. We mustn't be too sure. He sat thoughtfully for a moment before speaking again. Look here. This is a treacherous, dangerous place. Even at its best, I have seen men all but disappear in a land like this. A slip would do it sometimes. A single slip and down you go through a crack. Only a bubble in the green water to show where you had sank. I thought of how many times the men had stepped upon the ice fearlessly and wondered how often I myself had been inches away from such a fate. It's a queer thing, he continued with a nervous laugh, but I never once thought of making a will. When a man is exposed to danger, he should have everything arranged and ready. Don't you think so? Certainly, I answered, wondering what on earth he was driving at. He looked directly at me, his hazel eyes unwavering. If anything should ever befall me, I hope that you will look after things for me. There is very little in the cabin, but I'd like what's left to be sold and the money divided among the crew. This seemed like a reasonable request, so I agreed, 
while wondering if I should be taking more extensive notes. He then said, with a wry smile, The chronometer I wish you to keep yourself as a remembrance of our voyage. I thought of the heavy piece of machinery currently sitting in the captain's cabin, and the picture of the girl not too far from it, which bore the ominous inscription MB at 19. I doubt he would permit this object to be sold along with the rest, but I did not think it wise to ask. He continued, Of course, all this is a mere precaution, but I thought I would take the opportunity of speaking to you about it. Can I rely upon you? I reassured him that he could, and in that moment felt a blossom of affection for the captain. In this spirit of camaraderie, I added, I suppose if you are making such preparations, I may as well do the same. He interrupted me almost immediately, exclaiming, You! What the devil is the matter with you? I don't like a young fellow that has hardly begun life speculating about death. Go up on deck and get some fresh air instead of talking nonsense in the cabin and encouraging me to do the same. I must admit that my conversation with Craigie has left me uneasy. Why would the captain's mind be on settling his affairs just as we seem to be emerging from danger? Can it be that he contemplates suicide? I brought my concerns to Mr. Milne, who initially voiced the theory that the captain courts death. But he was, to my surprise, flippant about my fears. Aye, that's just the skipper's little way. Maybe he seems grim now and again, but he won't take his own life, lad. That I can promise ye. His words gave me some comfort, but I will keep an eye on the captain all the same. It seems foolish, but mere days ago, while he was at his lowest, I was wondering if his journal would be needed as evidence before a jury, in case he had to be relieved of command. Lately, however, I've begun to believe its only purpose may be as a document of what strange thoughts go through a man's mind upon the ice. Once I am home, I intend to lock it away for good and put this whole affair behind me. In spite of my newfound hope we will reach shore, the cry I heard that night still haunts me. The only way I can stop that ghastly wailing is to look forward to my life with Flora. I cannot dwell on what forces, natural or unnatural, compel the human mind into such fearful imaginings. September 19th. It is now seven o'clock in the morning. The whole crew is awake and on full alert. Panic ravages the vessel and me along with it. I hardly know how to write about it. All I can say is that the long impending catastrophe has come at last. The captain is gone. Coming up, John McAllister Ray ventures out onto the ice to find his missing captain. Hi listeners, Alastair here with a new series I think you'll really enjoy. They say there's someone for everyone. A soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with? Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the Parcast Limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. 
discover the radical side of romance with a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the podcast network. Track the nefarious exploits of Bonnie and Clyde, meet married mafiosos Jackie and Thelma Wright, and enter Fred and Rose West's real-life House of Horrors. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. Now, back to the story. September 19th continued. I spent the previous night searching these ice fields with the crew, hoping to find some trace of the captain. So far, our search has been in vain. I returned to the Pole Star and my journal to give some account of the circumstances which led to his disappearance. Should anyone ever read these words, you can be certain that I do not write from conjecture or hearsay. I am a sane, educated man, describing what has occurred before my very eyes. After our discussion of wills, the captain's demeanor was quite cheerful. He seemed filled with energy, going to the deck as many as seven times within the quarter of an hour. I followed him as closely as I dared. Something in his expression made me certain I could not let him out of my sight. Though the first mate seemed convinced he would not attempt suicide, I've heard enough of the captain's morbid remarks to be doubtful. After a while, his good spirit seemed more than a little forced. He would laugh boisterously at the smallest of jokes, as if to placate me, his shadow. Eventually, he suggested that I may be more comfortable below. This only increased my determination to stay at his side. Following this remark, he ignored me completely, muttering incessantly to himself. The only word I could discern was, ready. On hearing it, an eerie feeling came over me. He stopped pacing and looked out onto the ice for what felt like ages. I crept up behind him, trying to see what he was looking at. It seemed to be a swirling mist, a nebulous form barely more tangible than the moonlight that made it visible. Coming, lass! Coming! Craigie's voice shattered the silence so suddenly that I nearly fell over from shock. In an instant, he clambered on top of the bulwarks and leapt down onto the ice. He landed nearly a foot from the pale, misty figure and reached out as if to hold it. I ran to the edge of the ship, but a moment later, the night swallowed him. I saw him once more, illuminated by a sliver of moonlight. He was already a very long way off from the ship. This is the last glimpse which we caught of him. Perhaps the last we ever shall. If the captain's words from the other night are true, there may be little more of him than a crack in the ice. I very much hope that I am wrong. I will be joining our next search party, which is due to set out in a few hours. 7.30 p.m. Just returned from a second failed search for the captain. I am utterly spent. We must have crossed 20 miles of ice, with no hope of it coming to an end. 
The temperature has dipped so low that the snow is now as hard as granite. With no footsteps to guide us, we are unsure of where the captain may have gone. There is now disagreement among the crew as to how we should proceed. A southward passage has opened up and we could make for open sea. A significant portion of the crew, led by our second mate, Mr. Manson, argue that Captain Craigie is certainly dead and that we are all risking our lives for no purpose. Mr. Milne and I, however, wish to continue the search, likely since we are the only two who could say we were at all close with Craigie. In the end, we had to promise the crew we would not delay our departure any longer than one more day. We will take a few hours sleep and set off upon our final search at dawn. September 20th, evening. Our search consisted of two parties, a northbound led by Mr. Milne and a southbound led by myself and James Allen. Mr. Manson would not venture onto the ice, so was left in command of the ship. How easy it is to lose yourself in this place. The unchanging whiteness is like a maze without walls. Daedalus himself could not have devised so fiendish a labyrinth. At first, some of the men took to whistling. The sound only echoed back to us in a strange, atonal harmony. It felt, in that moment, as if we'd stepped away from the living world itself and were now travelling across Dante's Cocytus or some damnable land no poet has ever put to words. Not long after the pole star faded from view, we heard that shriek again. The one that has haunted my dreams for two nights. The group halted in terror, rifles searching in vain for the source of that awful noise. Everyone's eyes were wild, and I thought I caught muttered words of prayer coming from some of the men. From not too far off, we heard the shot of a rifle. Had Milne's party been set upon by a bear or a pack of seals? Or perhaps they too were menaced by an unseen foe? We listened closely, but there was no whistle or cry for help, so we continued on. Finally, we came to a long, narrow spit of ice. Our only path forward, it looked like a lonely white bridge stretching out into the mist. The men hesitated, but I begged them to continue as far as we could across it. With the support of Mr. Allen and the more loyal crew members, I was able to sway the rest. We had hardly gone a hundred yards before Sandy MacDonald let out a cry and began to run towards something in the distance. There was a dark shape upon the ice ahead, and as we raced together, it took on the shape of a man, lying face down on a frozen bank. It was Captain Nicholas Craigie. The man was unmoving. His uniform was flecked with ice, as if the frozen land itself was already leaching its roots into him. As we approached, a small gust of wind swept across him, tossing a flurry of ice crystals into the air around his body. I didn't mark it at first, but something familiar in its shape caught my eye. For a moment, it seemed as if the frost clung to the shape of a young woman. This figure stood tall, as if the bitter wind was nothing but a summer breeze. She stooped over to kiss our fallen captain, and then she was gone, the particles that comprised her form 
borne away into the Arctic air. A week ago, I may have written this vision off to exposure or dehydration, a hallucination signaling the onset of snow blindness, nothing more. But in the last few days, I have learned never to ridicule any man's opinion, however strange it may seem, even if that man is myself. When we turned Captain Craigie over, I was struck by the bright smile upon his blue pinched features. He looked a man who had not died in agony, but in greater bliss than ever I have seen on his noble face. We buried him the same afternoon. He was wrapped in the ship's flag, and a 32-pound shot was affixed to his feet. I read the burial service with a lump in my throat, while the rough sailors wept like children. There is nothing so revealing as grief. While the captain seemed distant from his crew in life, in death, I finally was able to see how much love they bore for him. I watched Craigie as he went down into the green water, down, down, until he was but a little flickering patch of white hanging upon the outskirts of eternal darkness. Then, even that faded away, and he was gone. Not a single bubble to show he had ever existed. I pray that his lot may be a happier one in the next life than it has been in this one. I am writing these words in my lonely cabin. When I am not listening for it, I think I can hear the captain's rapid steps on the deck above. I entered Craigie's cabin tonight to make a list of his effects. Everything looked as it had upon my last visit, save one small difference. That young woman's portrait, which had been hanging at the end of his bed, was now just an empty frame. It appeared as if it had been cut out with a knife. With this last link in a strange chain of evidence, I close my diary of the voyage of the Pole Star. I have no intention to continue it. I'm determined to not let this haunting experience infect my new life with Flora back in our home country. There's little more to record. Our way ahead is clear, and my heart swells at the thought of seeing Flora's face in person once again. Soon, I will have crossed the ocean that separates the two of us, and the great ice field will be but a remembrance of the past. February 4th, a postscript. I confess I did not intend to add any more to this journal. However, one last revelation has prompted me to revisit it for the purposes of making this document as complete an account as possible. This past weekend, my father travelled to Edinburgh to attend a meeting of the British Medical Association and encountered an old college friend of his. When his friend heard of my extraordinary adventure, he claimed he once knew a man with a remarkably similar disposition to Nicholas Craigie many years ago. This individual was a sailor who lived on the Cornish coast. He was engaged to a young lady of singular beauty. During his absence at sea, his betrothed died under circumstances of peculiar horror. I'm afraid my father is not a curious enough man to have inquired further, 
So those are all the details I have. Yet this bit of secondhand small talk brought a chill into my heart that I hadn't felt since the Pole Star departed from that infernal ice pack. After all these months, I'm thinking of Nicholas Craigie and his beloved, whose name I never knew. With the disappearance of her picture from the captain's cabin, all that remains of this young woman is in my memory. M.B. at 19 Within these six characters is a life that touched my own, whose truth I may never know. Until, of course, the day I follow my captain into the dread country he so yearned to see. But for myself, I hope that is a long, long time from now. Despite being most famous as a writer of mysteries and detective stories, tales like The Captain of the Pole Star were perhaps much closer to Arthur Conan Doyle's heart than any Sherlock Holmes yarn. Doyle was a profoundly spiritual man, but not in a traditional sense. A lifelong skeptic of organized religion, he abandoned his Roman Catholic upbringings at a fairly young age. Instead, he pursued the practice known as spiritualism, a belief system centered around finding concrete evidence for the afterlife. Throughout his life, Doyle attended countless seances, experiments in telepathy, and sessions with mediums. A decade after first publishing The Captain of the Pole Star, Doyle joined the British Society for Physical Research and took part in ghost hunts and investigations of paranormal phenomena. His support of spiritualism grew into advocacy in 1917, when he began giving lectures, writing essays, and attending public debates on the subject. The 1918 death of his son Kingsley, who was in his early 20s and served in World War I before succumbing to the Spanish flu, has prompted some to speculate that the fervor of Doyle's spiritual beliefs was bolstered by tragedy in his own life. The Captain of the Pole Star may be read as a metaphor for Doyle's growing spiritual beliefs. Dr. John McAllister Ray, Doyle's stand-in within the narrative, finds his own skepticism broken down by the tragedies of the world. Although, it must be said, this character never becomes as determined to prove the existence of ghosts as his creator will. Harry Price, a famous ghost hunter and debunker of hoaxes, once said of Doyle, among all the notable persons attracted to spiritualism, he was perhaps the most uncritical. His extreme credulity, indeed, was the despair of his colleagues, all of whom, however, held him in the highest respect for his complete honesty. Poor, dear, lovable, credulous Doyle. He was a giant in stature, with the heart of a child. Many of the tricks Doyle fell for, such as spirit photography and mediums, have been proven to be outright fraud. Smoke and mirrors designed to fool the gullible. But Doyle wanted to believe. In the end, Doyle wound up leaving the British Society for Physical Research because he felt their perspective had become too skeptical. So maybe Dr. McAllister Ray wasn't a stand-in for Doyle after all. 
The author may have begun his spiritual journey as a skeptic, but by the end of his life, he was more like the captain of the Pole Star himself, a man longing for reassurance that death, as cruel and abrupt as it is, can't be the end. And when all is said and done, we never know for sure what lies beyond life until we take that step ourselves. For all we know, Doyle may have found his faith rewarded. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was adapted for audio by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. Listeners, don't forget to check out the new podcast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.